Well, last week we uh, stormed the beaches of chapter 5, and we will press on into the interior this morning. Galatians 5, 7 through 12. Um, so let's pray, and then we'll go to the Word. Uh, our Father, we need changing We don't live as we ought, and we don't believe as we ought. In Christ, however, is unchanging perfection. So I ask that by your word and spirit you conform us into his image, and that we might uh, trust you as he does, and live in communion with you like he does, and obey you like he does. Uh, Change us by degrees, O Lord, through your ordained means, even as we wait for that day when we finally see Christ as He is and are made like Him. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, Just a brief word on context before we read the Scripture this morning. If you're reading through chapter 5, it's kind of almost strange because he's got this this, um, dialogue about freedom. And right here in the middle is like a parenthesis where he almost kind of jumps back to what he was talking about in chapters 1 and 2 about the apostolic gospel and how they have left the apostolic gospel. Um, and it's really an intense passage, one of the more intense uh, passages in Galatians. Um, but by adding this here in the middle of a discussion on freedom, he, he's reiterating the foolishness of, of following these false teachers who would put them into bondage. And so um, this is, I, I see it as a bit of a parenthesis in chapter 5, um, and then he kind of jumps back into to freedom again next time. And so, um, not that it's unconnected, but uh, let's read the text this morning, and we'll stand as we read God's Word. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul to the Galatians. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach with circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is God's word. You may be seated. You may have been duped by the old trick where you go in for the uh, chocolate chip cookie and discover it's a raisin cookie. Um, I actually like that trick. Raisin cookies are my favorite cookies. I'm getting glares from Stuart for that uh, opinion. That's all right. I can take the persecution. Uh, but, you know, it is fine. Ultimately, it's Baker's choice, right? Now, what if the baker decides he likes rat, rat droppings? Is that okay? That, that's not fine. But why is that not Baker's choice where raisins are? Because it's dangerous. It's a health hazard. Um, In the same way, untrue doctrine is dangerous. It's a hazard. Keep all of Christian faith. Keep, Keep the flour, the sugar, and the butter. But add 
one rat dropping and the, the whole batch of cookies is shot, right? Now, our default, I think, is to say, well, if they love Jesus, it's all good. Or, or, or even uh, more to the point of our, our culture that um, if they're not hurting anybody, it's all good. I like the wisdom of Brother Martin Lloyd-Jones here. He says, We have somehow got hold of the idea that error is only that which is outrageously wrong. And we do not seem to understand that the most dangerous person of all is the one who does not emphasize the right things. The call of this passage is to beware of those teachers and teachings which might be subtly added to the the corpus of Christian orthodoxy, if you will. That without our noticing, uh, in the end, we'll, we'll spoil the whole of our Christian faith. We must not entertain untrue doctrines. In verse 7, we see that false teachers are a hindrance to our faith. The Galatians didn't seem to understand that. They didn't understand the gravity of this situation. That the circumcision issue, um, that cir- the idea that circumcision might be a means of approach to God, that's actually uh, that's a rat dropping in the cookies. That, that's something that would result in their separation from Christ. And so Paul here makes it very clear that these false teachers are a hindrance to their faith. Um, life is a marathon. It's a long-distance uh, exercise. Uh, but marathons are run on flat pavement. There might be hills, but there's no, nothing, no obstacles in the way. And life has obstacles. Life has hurdles. I think of kind of that stereotypical military training course with the rope nets and the, the, the big wall that you have to use teamwork to get over and the mud pits and the barbed wire and people shooting over your head in combination with a marathon. It's like those tough mutter races. It's like a super long obstacle course. And not only that, but now imagine you're running that course with a football and there's 11 guys trying to smear you the whole time. That's life. And not only that, but it's like a maze. If you go down the wrong path, that path doesn't lead to the finish line. ESPN should hire me to invent new sports. (laughs) He says, the Galatians, that you were running well. You were staying the course. And then you got smeared. You got knocked off course. Somebody came in and tripped you up. You were hindered from obeying the truth, he says. And the great spiritual battles that go on behind the scenes over our souls, that picture of 11 men trying to smear us on the great obstacle course of life is quite accurate. But I think our perception rarely matches that reality. For us, I think we feel more like we're living in some kind of piped-in alternate reality, and our perception is more like we're on a leisurely jog on a beautiful misty morning, and and our friendly neighbor says, you know, joins us, comes alongside us and says, why not take the scenic route today? The devil wouldn't be foolish enough to send in deceivers and liars that we don't like. You know, that's quality number one on the con man's list of essential traits. Likeability, friendliness, he's nice. 
So you can imagine how jarring it is for these Galatians who are going on their merry way, following these very amicable teachers, when Paul gives them kind of a peek behind the curtain into the battle for their soul. They see a glimpse of reality, and the reality is they just got creamed by a 280-pound linebacker. They didn't even know it. We need to be beware of what we are believing. You may well adopt truth from someone you like very much. A likable teacher, a dear friend, a, a family member, and then find out later that that truth is, is poisoning the whole of your faith. And believe it or not, I do recognize this kind of talk is not culturally popular. Uh, which tells me I'm on the right track. Any talk of running well suggests that there is an appropriate way to run. But if we're going to claim to be Christians, we're going to have to run the course laid out for us by Christ. And it's a very serious thing to be knocked off course, to go down the wrong path in that maze. Our society preaches to us that whatever path we take, it's okay. Each path is equally valid. And Paul, however, is not so free-thinking. He literally says here, you were cut off from obeying or following the truth. Cut off from following the truth. By following these teachers, you no longer follow the truth. It's funny, in in these passages, I think Paul's getting a kick out of employing (laughs) circumcision innuendo in his language. It's literally, you were cut off from obeying the truth. Last week we heard him say, you are severed from Christ. He's saying, by listening to these false teachers, by removing the flesh, you are the flesh that is removed. You are cut off from the body of Christ. There's no room in Paul's mind to entertain parallel tracks to the same destination. There's one way to God. Either you follow the truth or you are cut off. There's no middle ground. This truth which they've adopted is not the truth. Or what is Francis Schaeffer's line? True truth? (laughs) It's not true truth. It's interesting here. I like his word persuasion. Uh, Persuasions matter to the Apostle Paul. And and we live in an action-focused society. What we do counts, but what we believe, what we think, that's a personal and private matter. Somehow it's almost gotten to our heads that what we believe is sort of like marital intimacy. You enjoy it personally, privately, not to be brought out of your home. And strangely enough, intimacy has been brought out of the home, but that's a whole other sermon altogether. But my point is, Paul does not see persuasions as private and personal. What these people believe matters, and it matters to him. Persuasions are for the public square, and especially in the church. So when a brother or sister rebukes or challenges what we believe, we don't take offense like it's none of their business. Like, what, what, why are you asking me about what I believe? It is our duty to, uh, to protect one another from the wolves. We 
what we believe is a corporate responsibility. And praise God, because he set up the obstacle course marathon in such a way that it is a team exercise. You know, you may be able to crawl through the mud alone, but how much better to have the encouragement of brothers and sisters on your right and left. And certain things like that big wall, you can't do it alone. You can't get to the end of the Christian life without Christian brothers and sisters. It is a team exercise. How can Paul be so confident that his truth and his persuasions are the right ones? You know, what gives him the right to say, you were running well and now you're not? And it goes back to chapter 1, in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. His gospel is the true gospel because it's not his gospel. It's Christ's gospel. The apostles were given this special commission to to pass along what they'd received from Christ. Jesus passed the baton of the gospel to them and he passed it along to the church. And even as we read the creeds this morning, we pass it along from hand to hand through the church. That one apostolic gospel of Jesus Christ. Just like Jude, verse 3 says, I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For contending for any faith that was not the once for all delivered faith, we're not contending for the faith. And that's why he substitutes this title. Uh, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. You'd expect him to say God there. And he says, him who calls you. Their new persuasion is not in accord with what has been passed down, that once for all delivered faith. The call of the apostolic gospel was from the mouth of the divinely appointed messenger, the apostle. But it's a call directly from God himself. He's only a messenger. And so to change the original charge, the original call of the gospel is to change allegiances altogether. Now, how can we be certain that our persuasions are God's persuasions? In other words, how can we claim to have God's persuasions without being arrogant? That sounds arrogant, doesn't it? I have God's persuasions. And the answer, I think, is very simple, is the doctrine we believe is apostolic. Do we submit to what the apostolic uh, teachers taught us? It's, it's in that idea of submission that humility is really found. It, we're not saying our persuasions are the best because we're geniuses. We're saying we're submitted to the truths that come from outside of ourselves these truths that come from God who's incarnate in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And to submit to any other doctrine is the pinnacle of arrogance because it's to place man's doctrines above God's doctrines. Now in verse 9 he says, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little false doctrine taints 
the whole loaf. I like the way Calvin put it. You're probably familiar with sourdough bread. You have a starter which is, has these yeast and bacteria in it, and and those when you put a little bit in the bread, then this, the uh, leaven spreads throughout the whole loaf and it rises um, and it turns the bread sour. That's the way sourdough works. Um, and he, Calvin says, uh, leaven, however small in quantity, communicates its sourness to the whole mass. I was watching a video about uh, early chemical leavening. And in the 18th century, this, this guy published this book about adulterants in bread. So there's all these, he identifies like six. One of them's chalk. So they put chalk in the flour to make it whiter. Um, and one, he refuses to say what it is because it's so dangerous, but they've kind of concluded that they think it's lead oxide. They're putting lead oxide in bread. <laughs> so you don't need to bake a whole loaf of lead oxide to make it dangerous. How much lead oxide do you need to put to make it poisonous? Like a quarter teaspoon it is terrible for you. A little bit of doctrine, false doctrine, goes a long way. It taints the whole loaf. And that, that's why I, I militate against the idea of doctrinal minimalism. This idea of let's hold to the very minimum core doctrines of Christianity to maintain unity in the church. Let's only hold to the core gospel truths. Isn't that a contradiction of what Paul just said? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You don't need to cast out the core truths to corrupt the core truths. Every doctrine is connected to Christ and His cross. Uh, Consider the controversial doctrine of limited atonement. Many of our minimalist brothers and sisters will say, well, that's not worth discussing. Well, let's ask some questions and, and see if it's worth discussing. Maybe we'll ask one question. Who did Jesus die for? Well, there we are, smack dab in the middle of a discussion on limited atonement. Seems like a basic question to me. Every doctrine is connected to Christ and His cross. So we need to be aware that we're not adding to or subtracting from that apostolic gospel. It's the one and only true gospel. Any addition or subtraction will corrupt the whole. They're not mere addendums. They are corruptions. We don't want to find out on our last day that our persuasions were not of Him who called us. We need to hold fast, seek out, cling to apostolic teaching. and to maintain the whole gospel. All this talk about kind of the dangers of the Christian life and uh, obstacle courses and the challenges and getting smeared uh, makes me start to kind of question, like, am I going to make it to the end? It's so hard. I think verse 10 helps us with that, with assurance. Uh, I think we can conclude several things that will assure us from what Paul says in verse 10. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. I have uh, four things that I came up with that we can conclude here. The first thing we can conclude is that he believes his warnings will be effective. 
Paul believes his warnings will be effective. It's clear that Paul hasn't given up hope on these people. You don't launch a rescue mission for someone that's dead. Maybe a recovery mission, but not a rescue mission. He believes there's life there. You know, if, if a tree dies, but there's life in the stump and you chop off the dead, a new shoot will shoot up, new life, will, a new tree will be produced from that core life in the stump. He believes there's yet life. He clearly believes they, they actually believed the gospel when he first came and preached it to them. So the same thing is true of us. If we're believing untrue things, uh, we may have to endure a painful pruning, but it will produce new life. And when we're reaching out to loved ones, we don't give up. If they've wandered from the faith, if their profession was genuine, if they were really made new creatures in Christ, they may have wandered, but God will complete in them what He started. And that's really the greatest conclusion from this verse. And, um, that is that we can conclude that it was not ultimately dependent upon us to get to the end. He says that his confidence is in the Lord that they will take no other view. In the Lord. So this is not a you-can-do-it-I-believe-in-you speech. That would contradict everything Paul's preached in this letter if that was what he was saying. The good news of the gospel is that not reach down deep and find your inner strength to pull yourself up. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has completed the marathon for us on our behalf. If we believe in Him, we enjoy His victory apart from anything we might do. We contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. So his confidence is in the Lord, that they will take no other view. And that's our confidence as well. If I could walk away, I would walk away. It's only in the Lord's strong arm that keeps me. As Philippians says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Lastly, we can conclude that those who trouble us will face judgment. Verse 10 again, he says that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul and the apostles are always much harder on false teachers than they are on people who believe false teachers. Very much so. Paul... Uh, he, he, he cares for his sheep like a shepherd, like a father. But the wolves, they're going to receive the butt end of that staff. These men, these, these people who are deceiving the Galatians, they will be cast out. They will receive their reward, which is actually, I think, the point of the very strange verse, verse 12. And I'm going to hit verse 12 and then come back to verse 11. Um, Verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Talk about one of the strangest verses in the Bible. (laughs) What does that mean? Is he just kind of taking a shot, like throwing a dirty punch that he doesn't like these guys? How does this play a role in his argument? 
And I think the key is um, in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 23, which is um, some uh, ceremonial laws, the context there. And in verse 1 of 23 says, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? <laughs> We're getting into the weeds here. But remember, one of the chief purposes of the ceremonial law was to set the people of God apart from the nations. And apparently, one of the things people would do was to mutilate their children to, to prepare them to be eunuchs, to be priests for their various cultish religions. So you can see that while circumcision is the, the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament, going the whole way is the sign of paganism. Does that make sense? So already in Galatians, Paul has compared the Judaizing people, these false teachers, to paganism. He's basically called it paganism a number of times. And I think what he's doing here is saying they might as well go the whole way. If they're going to require you to keep this Old Testament ceremony, which has been abrogated in Christ, they might as well just adopt the sign of pagan religion. Because already there's no place for that in the assembly. They're already outside the assembly, so they might as well take the sign upon themselves. I think that's what he's saying, and that may sound harsh, and Paul, I know, he did not say this lightly. Or I read someone that thought this was kind of a joke, like a tongue-in-cheek. This is not a joke. This is very serious. In, in, in Romans 9, he wishes aloud that, if possible, he himself could go to hell so that his fellow Jews could be saved. That's how seriously he takes the salvation of people. And I think surely he would welcome these teachers with open arms if they would repent. But there's an awareness here of the seriousness with which God takes false teaching. You know, one reason the medieval church burned heretics, right? Murder is a capital offense. How, what, what kind of offense is soul murder? That's why, they, that's why they executed heretics, because heresy is soul murder. Now, I don't advocate burning heretics, but oh, oh to have a hatred of heresy in this day. Now, let's return back to verse 11, and we'll wrap up. Uh, he says in verse 11, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Have you ever seen a, a football player run to the wrong end zone? They get confused. They take off the other way. And they're running so free down the field, and I'm sure it feels great. No one's even close. you know. And they get, get to the end. They may spike the ball and celebrate. And then it begins to dawn on them all of a sudden what they did and, and, you know, the embarrassment. And suddenly it's painfully obvious why no one was chasing them. The other team was standing back, cheering them on, you know. If we're already headed down the wrong path, there's no need for the enemy to try to derail us. They can just sit back and watch and cheer us on. 
And apparently here there was some confusion in the Galatian church about whether or not Paul did still preach circumcision. Perhaps the Judaizers were telling these Galatians that he did. Um, But he says basically, look how many people are trying to tackle me. (laughs) Nobody got tackled more than Paul. It's actually because the gospel of the cross, which is opposite to the gospel of circumcision, that he's being persecuted. And the cross of Jesus is a scandal. Um, It's offensive. It's offensive because it esteems lowliness, for one thing. But it's also offensive because it preaches man's utter inability to please God. If Paul would preach circumcision, he would remove the offensive part of the cross that says, you can't please God by your actions. And that really, I think, is what all of our itching ears want to hear. You can, please, you can do it. You can please God. We want to hear messages that esteem men, that lift up mankind's ability to succeed, to triumph over darkness, to make ourselves right with the divine or, or just make ourselves divine. That's the kind of thing we want to hear. But what the cross preaches instead, and it crushes our ego and makes us let go of ourselves and cling to the cross, the cross preaches the holiness of God. That what sin deserves is the cross and the cup of God's wrath poured out on sin. The cross preaches that mankind required not a guide or a friend, but a substitute and a savior. The cross preaches that there is one way to God, and that's through the work of one man, Jesus Christ. You can't do it. You can't do it alone. And that gospel is at the heart of the apostolic testimony. So hold fast to that apostolic testimony, the pure gospel, the whole gospel. Hold fast by submission to it. We might ask, how do we hold fast? It's very simple. We read of it. The apostles in the Bible, we have them to read. We attend to the means of grace as we do here this morning, hearing the word preached and receiving the sacraments. We join in one another with fellowship over it. We teach and admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's very basic, but it's, it's radical too. Do not add to the apostolic testimony and do not subtract from it. I just want to conclude with a reading of Paul's own apostolic testimony from uh, 1 Timothy 1 and verses 12 through 17. He, Paul tells Timothy, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, 
that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.